Support for this podcast comes from Invent Together. I bet you didn't know that inventing activity by black inventors peaked in 1899, and it has never recovered. Black and Hispanic college graduates patented half the rate of white college graduates. That's just one of the reasons why you need to know about Invent Together. When our patent system gets more diverse, our nation will get stronger and more successful. Find out how you can help diverse inventors and unleash economic opportunity at inventtogether.org. Hi, and welcome to The Pollsters. I'm Margie O'Mara, Democratic pollster with GBA Strategies. And I'm Kristen Soltis-Anderson, Republican pollster with Echelon Insights. And each week we bring you the polls driving the latest news in politics, tech, and pop culture. So we have lots of big anniversaries. We just had the State of the Union, which is kind of a reminder of the beginning of our pollster's journey. Was that 15, 16, it was 15, State of the Union, 15. We've been doing this for four years. Four years. Whoa. Well, we didn't start the day of the State of the Union, but that was like when we began to hatch the plot. That's right. And and so that was big. And then I'm at a conference in Vegas. And when I was at this conference last year, I like, I didn't, we didn't have Richard and I was, had all my equipment here and I lost the file and I was like, forget it. (laughs) Take all my chips and my file Vegas. And then I came back to Vegas the following week and had to like edit it badly in my hotel room, you know, on another Vegas trip. And I was like, you know what? We need a producer. (laughs) This is not working very well for me. (laughs) So that is an anniversary of finding Richard or at least being motivated to find Richard. So that is what's going on right now. And I'm back here and it's so nice and not, have like to do the uploading and all that stuff after this. So thank you, Richard, for being part of this. Thank not you, the Richard. First three years. Richard's waving at me. He's waving to you too, it, indirectly via via okay. the the mic and the powers of the interwebs. Fantastic. So Fantastic. I have I have some fun Echelon news. Um, yes. We at Echelon are so excited. We just made a new hire this week, which is in in a way kind of our first like bi- bi- no. I love all of our staff. All of our hires are big hires, but like Kelsey is the first person who's going to have the title of vice president. Kelsey Patton oh. coming to us as the she was d- data director at the NRCC last cycle. She is amazing. The day she told us she accepted the offer, I practically did a cartwheel in my house, and I'm too old for that. Uh, it like I'm just so thrilled. So Echelon is going to be so exciting this cycle. We are going to be in the campaign world in a way we have not been before. Get hype, everyone. That's great. Congrats. Good to have good people. Oh, yeah. Uh, and, by the way, Echelon is now 50-50, a 50-50 gender-balanced company. We don't intend – like, that's – we don't go out looking for that intentionally because, you know, we're Republicans and that's not how we – but I am – I'm just – it's a thing that I am proud of on the inside that we have – That is – We have so many women great. at our firm, so. Well, if you – I mean – if you ever pitch Democratic business, that would be a great selling point. <laughs> I don't know how it works in a Republican pitch. I can tell you that it would work quite well in a Democratic pitch. Well, we had the State of the Union on Tuesday. Has any president ever said the State of the Union isn't strong? Um, does the speech ever move numbers? We will discuss whether Tuesday's speech is the dawning of a new era for the Trump administration or a soon-to-be-forgotten blip. And then, what of 2020? With more and more contenders jumping in, we'll take a look at Trump's re-election prospects and what we can know about the Democratic field. Then you've got wealth taxes, Medicare for all, a Green New Deal, lots of ideas. 
is popping up on the Democratic side. We'll look at some new polling on wealth taxes. And then there's been a lot of apologizing lately. Do people think public officials should have to apologize for things like painting their faces black in the past? Uh, We will discuss. And also, speaking of apologies... How do the Brits apologize? We are always on top of the British to American English translation (laughs) polls. We will continue to bring them to you. And finally, it was the big game on Sunday. What were the favorite ads? We'll look at some ratings of which ads people liked the best. Yes. So it was the State of Union this week and people really watching, you know, with the shutdown over, but then the State of the Union what does it all mean for how people view Trump and what they what the expectations were and then what happens after the fact? Um, I, I think we, you know, I, I guess there are a couple of things. I mean, I guess people were, you know, headed into the state of the union. Trump's numbers were essentially unchanged. Maybe they, the 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 drop that he was experiencing during the shutdown had stopped. But it was was he truly rebounding? And then the question, I think. You know, we'll see how that evolves over the next week or so. But then you have the complication of State of the Union reaction polls, which reflect the viewership of the State of the Union, which is disproportionately Republican. So it looks like Trump did well in the State of the Union. But is that really a reflection of the people who wanted to watch him and then wanted to take a poll about wanting to watch him? Yeah, I mean, this is we we talk about this every time there's a State of the Union where the I think the polls always come in showing people saying, yeah, I you know, the instant snap poll of speech watchers always loved the speech. When it was the Obama administration, the in, the watchers always loved the speech. In the Trump era, the watchers always loved the speech. It's That's kind of the snap polls that happen after the fact are of limited utility. And there's a lot of evidence. Um, when I was on, I went on Dana Perino's show on Tuesday and they had a big graphic up about, they, they basically said like, here is what the president's job approval has done from the week before to the week after the State of the Union, going back like multiple president over multiple presidents, multiple and like none of it ever moves. Like it's the sort of thing where there's all this buildup and oh, what are they going to say? And then you know it doesn't really change things a ton. And it, it strikes me that this is likely to be the same. I mean, six in ten speech watchers in that CNN snap poll said they had very positive reactions um, to the president's speech. This is better than he did. Last year, where only 48 percent said they had a very positive reaction to the president's speech. So I I think it is I would argue this was maybe his best of the now three state of the union or state of the union esque speeches he's given, because I think technically that first one is not a state of the union. It's just an address to the joint session of Congress. But, um, you know, it's it's better than the one he gave last time, according to the snap poll. But there's only so much you can read into it. And again, when people when they asked in that CNN poll, what's your reaction to Trump's immigration policies? I mean, 68 percent of people watching the speech said, oh, he's right on immigration. That's significantly higher than when you ask in the abstract, you know, do you what's your job approval on Trump for immigration? It's never even close to 68 percent. So this is a very unique universe of people who watch these speeches. Right. And, you know, by the way, just as a digression, and then I want to talk about something else about the speech. But are, when people say, yes, I like his immigration policies from the speech, are they talking about the written text or his ad lib about wanting more legal immigration? I'm assuming 
they're just sort of responding to kind of Trump on immigration more broadly rather than the fact that he had kind of divergent policies that he mentioned in the speech, but an interesting little well, yeah, I mean, point. I assume, I mean, so I was I was at ABC uh, News Radio that night and they come in and they walk into the booth as the speech is starting with the paper printout of the speech text. They say, you can't, don't tweet this. <laughs> you can't tweet any lines until he, they actually come out of his mouth. Um, and by the way, when I saw how thick the stack of papers was, I was like, oh God, we're going to be here forever. It was uh, long. It, it, wasn't yeah. it like the longest one in modern history or something? Like he put Bill Clinton to shame. It, it was it like they long. handed me that stack of papers and I was like. All right. Are there any points in here when I can uh, play a quick game of pandemic on my phone? <laughs> like I'll speed read through those pages and then um, I, I mean, know, and like... honestly, like not to put my partisan hat on. And I think we also know that my partisan hat does not necessarily mean like my MAGA hat. But, but like I, there were I think actually some of the unscripted moments were like the bet, you know, when he when like he talked about women's unemployment and that women are now 58 percent of the workforce and like the Democratic women kind of started like hooting and hollering. And then he was like, oh, stay, stay standing. You're going to like this next part. And I had the paper in front of me. And so I knew what was coming. And I was like, oh, this is going to be good. <laughs> when he said, like, you know, we have the record number of women in Congress. And then, they, you know, I, I, I kind of liked that moment. And it was also fun having the speech text there where you sort of knew where he was going <laughs> with that. Right. Um, that, was, that was pretty I funny. alone can fix it. I alone can fix the representation of women in Congress. <laughs> in, a, in a sense, they do owe him a thanks for that. <laughs> yes. Thank in, you. In a sense. You did it. You did it, big guy. All right. So, um, but, you know, there was another poll. Is this morning consult, uh, Politica morning consult, what should Trump talk about in the speech or how important is it that he discussed this? I guess it's slightly different. And things at the top, some of the things, I mean, I don't think he spoke much about health care, but maybe, uh, maybe he did. Um, and uh, improving the economy, not surprised, are at the top of the list. Providing direction and leadership, that's pretty vague, but interesting that that third reducing poverty in the u.s is fourth that's i think quite interesting um and then improving the immigration system is kind of top i guess maybe mid-pack or the bottom of the top tier or the top of the mid mid mid-tier uh building a wall at the u.s mexico border is all the way at the bottom and it has the highest not at all important that he talk about that uh of all the different issues they tested like 12 or so issues which I thought was interesting. Yeah, it was the speech was fascinating because like my my snap punditry on it was that it was this it, it was it tried to walk the fine line between having enough stuff in it that his base would like so that they would go, "Okay, he's still with us," but have enough stuff that you could actually get Democrats to work with him on to kind of pique people's interest. So, you know, he and, and so he'd set these things up where he'd be like there, let's talk about paid family leave. And you can kind of see the Republicans all like looking at each other like, uh, I think, I mean, it's Trump. I think we're supposed to clap for this. And like the Democrats are like, uh, it's Trump, but I think we're supposed to clap for this. Like, <laughs> And then he immediately goes like, and also late term abortion bills in New York and Virginia. And you're like, oh, OK, now now the two sides can do what they normally do. OK, you know, like and it was it was that constant. You know, he'd talk about like criminal justice reform and we want to bring people together on this issue and then oh by the way people are coming across the border with fentanyl and you're like it would go from being people wondering like oh I think I should clap for this even though it cuts against my normal partisan whatever and then like he'd say something that was very conventionally 
Trumpy Republican or whatever. So it was it was a fascinating bounce back and forth. But it is clear that the speech was mostly viewed by a right leaning audience. I mean that that CBS News poll. So YouGov yeah. did a similar thing to what CNN did with a snap poll. I mean, they found 76 percent approved of the speech, uh, which is a slightly different way of asking it than did you feel very positive, very negative. Um, but there I mean, they have the party ID among speech watchers was 43 percent of speech watchers identify as Republicans, only 24 percent as Democrats. So not a representative sample of the electorate. But uh, still, I mean, if you're the White House, you got to be pretty happy with the response. Yeah, I, I mean, I think, look, it's uh you know, whenever he has these conversations, they're almost always base plays, right? I mean, sure, they tried to set up the expectation that there was going to be some unity here. And sure, he had some moments of it. But ultimately, you know, he he's not taking a different tack. And and certainly in some of the conversations that I, I guess, I don't know if they were on the record, but we saw lots of reporting on what happened. Um, you know, he was very partisan in his sort of pre pre-game meetings with reporters and such. So it's not a surprise that, you know, Republicans liked it and it just sort of, you know, reinforces everyone's pre-existing views uh, of the president. You know, I, so on the plane uh, yesterday, I watched, I finally got to watch the notorious RBG documentary, which I was so, I was so excited to watch. And so there was, I guess there was, and I had forgotten this, that a couple of State of the Unions ago, she fell asleep and they showed the video of her, like her head slumped down. And so they asked her about it. She's like, you know, all the members of Congress, they're bouncing up and down the whole time, you know, standing up, sitting down, standing up. So, you know, they don't, they, they are going to stay alert. <laughs> we have to be stone faced the whole time. And so it's just a little bit easier to fall asleep in that scenario. I mean, she, she didn't say it's easier to fall asleep. She just said, look, you know, we have to sit there completely still and stone faced. So I thought that was a funny way of thinking about how you have to approach the speech. Well, President Trump's job approval, according to the Real Clear Politics average, is sitting at about 41 percent. Again, the bleeding has kind of stopped in the, you know, government has been temporarily reopened mode. We are only a little over a week away from a potential second shutdown if no deal is struck between now and then. Um, and so, again, could go lower. They could get a final deal. It could go higher. Who knows? Um, But, you know, the White House, on the one hand, cannot be happy with where his numbers are compared to where they were pre-shutdown. But at least they're not getting worse right now. And it it may take another week for us to see if his job approval actually improves as a result of things like the State of the Union. Okay, Margie, so let's talk 2020. Yeah. Uh, Should we very studiously go through all the public polling to know for certain what's going to happen in the 2020 <laughs> primary and general election. Because it's, it's we, basically tomorrow. It's basically tomorrow. <laughs> well, aren't we less, we're less than a year out from Iowa, right? I mean. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So it's around the corner. Um, <laughs> so, but I mean, look, I guess there's two issues. There's the primary and then there's the general. And I think the general, um, you know, obviously there's kind of bouncing around, but still at least people have an idea of what they're responding to. And so there's different versions of essentially a reelect number, what we call a reelect number. And we do this for campaign candidate polls too. Like, would you vote to reelect this person or replace them? Or would you consider somebody else? There's different ways of asking it. And so there are different outlets that ask it different ways. And you know, you, you want to have a strong reelect uh, that, you know, 
ideally is over 50%. Sometimes they're lower, but candidates can still be strong with lower reelects. It depends on how well known the candidate is. This is obviously for non-presidential races, but the numbers for Trump and his reelects and how different outlets have been asking, and it's, you know, not great. 41% say they're very or somewhat likely to support him. You have almost 60% who say they're, they aren't. Um, it, it's similar to lots of other, I think Mammoth had something this week that had something similar. We've seen lots of polling outlets ask some sort of reelect now, and it's usually in this kind of 57 to 60% say they're not going to vote for him. Um, and I, I know that a lot can happen. And I know we don't, obviously we, we don't have any idea who the democratic nominee will be. Uh, but I think there are signs combined with approval rating of, of weakness for sure, uh, for the president. Now where there's a lot of uncertainty is on the, in the Democratic field, how people are approaching the Democratic field, how people view specific candidates in the Democratic field. You know, there's lots of polling about it because people want to know the answers to these things. But it's hard to know in a vacuum when a lot of these candidates are still unknown, never mind being announced or not. So uh, there's one poll about Biden where a majority of Democrats want Biden uh, to run. I'm not sure where is this poll from. I don't know. Well, this there's is- there's polling the CNN SSRS poll. If you if you pull up, they've got like these great summary tables where they say, you know, I'm going to read you the names of a few people who may be running or are running for president in 2020. And for each, tell me if you're very likely, somewhat likely, not too likely or not at all likely to support them if they decide to run. No opinion is also an option. But here, so you you actually, on the one hand, yes, you have 58 percent of people who say they are not too or not at all likely to vote for President Trump. On the other hand, his 41 percent very or somewhat likely number, I mean, his number on this question is better, comparable to and then comparable to Bernie Sanders. Um, It's, you know, slightly worse on the not at all, not too likely uh, question versus like Kamala Harris. It's pretty equivalent with Elizabeth Warren. And I mean, again, if people don't know who these people are, no opinion is an option. Uh, I still think that for some of these, even if someone doesn't really have an opinion, they're still lodging something. But I mean, only Joe Biden really clearly, strongly has a better answer on this question than Trump does. So it's kind of like America's just saying, I don't like any of these options, which it's too soon for America to say that because uh, you don't know that many of them. But um, it, for, on the one hand, if you just look at the Trump number, it looks ugly for Trump. On the other hand, his numbers don't look that different from all the other people that they polled. So, yeah, there's there there are ways of reading this glass half empty. And you certainly don't want to run for re-election with almost six in 10 Americans saying that they're unlikely to vote for you. On the other hand, it's not as though there are a ton of other people being tested at this point who are like dramatically out polling him. I mean, everybody, my read on this data is that America's kind of going, oh, I don't feel likely to vote for any of these people. And also remember, this is a, a survey of all adults, which is not the same as registered voters, which is definitely not the same as likely voters. So it's possible that those numbers would be even worse for Trump among likely voters, but they could also be better. It's That's, that's sort of an unknown at this point. Yeah. I mean, look, look I, I think the numbers for Trump are weak. I mean, you're right. N- there's no other Democrat other than Biden who has, you know, who sort of surpasses him in some real way in terms of the very somewhat likely. But the not at all likely for Trump is over half, right, which no other candidate has over half. Say, I'm not at all likely to vote for Trump. The no opinion is lower for Trump than for anybody else, you know. So the intensity 
I mean, and even the intensity of support, the very likely for him is just 29%, you know, 52% say not at all likely, 29% say very likely. Yeah, so that's, there's, there's not a know, lot of people saying probably not to Trump. They're like, it's the the the, yes. he, the heck no is a majority of Americans. They're like, oh, yeah, I probably won't. I'm not sure yet. Like, that, like that's not a lot of people. Um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's, you know, people have very strong opinions about him. And there's a lot more. Uh, there's a lot less intensity for everybody else, for any of the Democratic candidates. And, and I, you know, and, and obviously where these Democratic candidates are now is, you know, it will evolve dramatically. Uh, you know, the fact that there's clear intensity in these negative opinions on Trump is quite, quite something. Um, you know, and then I guess this is the same CNN poll where they ask about, um, like, you know, should Biden run in particular? You know, the question is different than, I mean, we asked, we saw that, would you support him? This is, should he run, which, you know, you, you can feel differently about than support. That's not quite the same dimension. You could say, sure, why not? And be open to somebody else. Or you could say, sure, yes, because I want to support you either way. Yeah. I mean, I feel like for the most part, it's hard for me to think of a poll that I've seen where people are like, no, I don't want someone to be an option. You know, it's kind of like there's no cost to ha- well, I guess except in the sense that there's going to be like 30 people running which will make the debates unwieldy, but I mean for most for the most part it would surprise me if you had a lot of polling showing people going like no, please don't run. I don't want you as an option in the field. I it's, it's my sense it's kind of like a everybody run, let's see who the best candidate is and then let's go take on Trump in the general. Right. And right. And so speaking of that, there was a question like, how important is this to you in deciding how to vo- how to vote in the Democratic primary? And the the winner from this list of like, I guess, it's six, seven different items is has a good chance of beating Trump, that this sort of electability piece is what Democrats prioritize. We talked about this a little bit last week. I think there's this conventional wisdom out there that, you know, progressives and Democrats are, you know, looking for some kind of candidate that they're not as focused as they should be on just taking on Trump. There's, you know, polling that shows quite a few, you know, there's probably more who say actually care about quote unquote electability or someone who has a good chance of beating Trump. Um, They have, you know, these other things has the right experience has been consistent on issues over the years, represents the future of the party. All these are lower tier willing to work with Republicans to get things done holds progressive positions on the issues and can bring an outsider's perspective to Washington. Um, they they don't have, I think on here, like something about background or, you know, I guess maybe that's what future of the Democratic Party, but something of like a background that you find interesting or important or exciting, inspirational. I mean, there's, there's other things that people look at besides this, you know, somebody they feel has empathy, really understands people like you. I mean, that's a common thing that people say is important or that it emerges to be important when people think about candidates. None of that is in this list. You know, I think the thing, this is not just this poll, but in general, when we look at media outlet, public polling about the presidential race, and I've seen this in past cycles, you know, I think we want to caution, you know, looking at these questions through the lens of what political insiders and reporters want to know and think about how voters tackle these questions. And so, you know, something about like really understands people like me or, you know, cares about what I've been going through or is going to, you know, change the tenor of, and of, of Washington and politics or inspirational. I mean, these kinds of things 
are important to people. They're not on this list. This list, I think, is like, to me, I think some of them are a little bit more like looking at your lane or the political operative question or the narrative kind of question and less about how voters approach this. I do think also that, I mean, there are things that are not necessarily mutually exclusive. The question doesn't require people to think of it in a mutually exclusive term. I mean, you could say all of these factors are extremely important to you. You could say, so for instance, like thinking about this through the 2016 Republican lens, I don't know if this question was asked back then, but it wouldn't surprise me if has a good chance of beating Hillary Clinton would be top of that list. However, even though on the outside, it looked like Donald Trump might be the worst equipped to do that within the Republican world, there was a core group of people who thought, no, actually, Trump is the best equipped to take on Hillary Clinton. And so they might have, you know, thought that electability was really important, but that didn't necessarily mean they wanted like a moderate, you know, or a a Rubio or anything like that. Like that that sometimes people's responses on these questions don't necessarily mean what political operatives think it means in terms of like which candidate they therefore would prefer. Um, but it, right. I, it, I do think, though, that this sort of supports my operating theory, which is we're going to have all these candidates and we'll talk about, you know, these wealth taxes in a second. But, you know, that'll be here's my tax plan. Here's my Green New Deal plan. Here's my Medicare for all plan. Here's this and that and the other thing. And I I believe that policy matters. This is the stuff that I like. But maybe I'm just so burned from the 2016 side where, like, Jeb Bush would roll out his education plan and everyone would be like, but what did Trump tweet today? You know, that like I'm just uh, like I'm so broken on the idea that policy matters, even a tiny little itty bitty bit in this sort of situation, because it just felt like it did not really get a lot of attention in 2016 on the R side that, you know, right. when they ask, well, how important is it for you that someone holds progressive positions on the issues? The fact that only 25 percent of people say that's extremely important to them sort of suggests to me that you as a Democratic candidate could be much more close to the center as long as you can credibly demonstrate and I can beat Trump. That like progressives might say you're further right than I'm comfortable with normally, but you could probably beat Trump and that's priority number one. And like that was sort of my operating theory going into this. And the CNN poll number has just kind of reinforced for me that that's that's how the the field might shape up. Right, right. And also, too, we, you know, we saw this a lot in 16 where people would, you know, they'd ask questions about women candidates and such. And, you know, are people responding to that because they know that they're thinking about Hillary Clinton as opposed to a woman candidate more broadly. You know, do we have a little bit of that here in these questions? Maybe, maybe not. We might ha- see that more in polling as the cycle moves on where people are answering these questions because they're thinking not about the the thing itself, but through the lens of the candidate, they have already support, they're already supporting for whatever reason. Um, you know, the other thing when you're looking at 2020 Democratic primary polling is to make sure that you're accounting for the fact that, you know, these candidates have different levels of hard ID. So Quinnipiac did a poll in Calif- California, and they asked how excited would you, would you be excited for Elizabeth Warren? Would you be excited for Bernie Sanders, Beto, Kirsten Gillibrand? And so they're releasing the percent that say they would be excited. Now, is it because, you know, these some of these candidates would be not exciting? They they are not excited at all or because they're less well known and, you know, they don't run that. They don't I don't think they ask favorability. So they don't have hard ID as a 
banner point where you can look at these questions and see, okay, well, of the people who know all of the candidates, they are most excited about X. That We don't see that here. So it's just another thing to keep in mind when you're comparing all this public polling of candidates with all kinds of different national profiles. And it really makes a difference in, in the results that you see. Are you good with people? Maybe you're organized or have a knack for numbers. Well, then chances are you've got skills that could lead to a new career. A Google Career Certificate can help you get a foot in the door with top employers in fast-growing fields like IT support, project management, data analytics, and user experience design. It's professional-level training developed and taught by Google employees, and it's all online so you can learn around your schedule. Put your skills to work. Go to grow.google/certificates. So there was also a little bit of polling by Quinnipiac. Just they, they polled California, which is going to be, you know, we typically think of Iowa, New Hampshire, South Carolina, Nevada as these like important primary states. But California kind of moving up in the calendar raises its importance a bit. And also given that Kamala Harris is running, you know, that's her home state. Uh, that's that's where she was attorney general. So Quinnipiac takes a look, um, asks voters, Democrats in California about their excitement level for different candidates. Forty four percent say they would be excited for Elizabeth Warren to run. 44% say they'd be excited for Bernie Sanders to run. 40% say they'd be excited about Beto O'Rourke. Only 21% say they'd be excited about Kirsten Gillibrand. And then they ask a battery of questions about Harris. And they actually find 40% say she would make a good president. 38% say no. Um, But this, I think, is not just among Democrats. I think these figures are for overall Californians. When they ask just among Democrats, it goes up to 68% saying yes, 12% saying no. Republicans, not big fans of a potential Kamala Harris candidacy uh, or presidency. Um, Women say yes. Men say no. I mean, the the divides are what you think. Um, And California voters disapprove of Trump 67 to 28 Hmm. Surprise. So let's <laughs> breaking, just, breaking, breaking. So let's talk briefly about, um, you know, again, we said there are some of these policy proposals being out there. Um, wealth taxes are one of them. Morning Consult has done a little polling on the tax plan proposed by Elizabeth Warren, which they describe as a 2% wealth tax on households worth at least $50 million. And uh, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, whose uh, proposal would create a 70 percent marginal tax rate on income over 10 million. Um, the Warren proposal is positively viewed. 61 percent say that they would favor this among Democrats. It's three out of four. Republicans actually half say they would be OK with uh, a wealth tax of 2 percent on households over at least 50 million. The tax plan proposed by Ocasio-Cortez, however, gets much lower ratings. Only 45 percent say that they would favor it. Another chunk say they they don't know. A third say they'd oppose. Among Democrats, you still have a significant amount of support, 60 percent, but that's a drop off from the 74 for Warren's plan. And Republicans, while they were open to Warren's plan, not so much to Ocasio-Cortez's 70 percent marginal tax rate with 49 percent saying they oppose it. Okay. So the other thing to keep in mind, I just looked this up as we were talking, is that they name the candidate, they name Warren and Ocasio-Cortez in the questions. So does that play a role or what do we think now about the results knowing that they have asked, they ask about, they they name them as the folks who propose these tax I mean, neither Elizabeth Warren nor Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez is beloved by Republicans. Right. So Um, despite that, 
you have a majority of, you know, half, just barely half a Republican support Warren's tax. And you have, you know, AOC is more, you know, I get maybe, I mean, is she more of a lightning rod with the Republicans? It's so confusing. Anyway, so the, the, like that is more. Remember, young partisan. men, young men for Ocasio-Cortez. It's a thing I, that we know, found you know, in poll after poll. <laughs> I saw, I saw a, a photo. There's like a photo of her walking out of the, um. Uh, State of the Union. I don't know if it's like, I think it's like a real photo as opposed to someone just like kind of making a photo, but she's walking by like a group of, I don't want to say they're Republican, they're just like young men in suits, all kind of looking at her in a way that I was like, this is like Kristen's <laughs> banner book that <laughs> comes to life in a photo. It's going to send it to you. But I was like, I don't know if this is a real photo or not, but it's uh, I think it's real and not to, point. not to get all, you know, women in politics fashion talk, but I really liked your jacket. I thought it was great. I, know. I uh, agree. So let's. So, oh, go ahead. No, no, I, I, <laughs> I'm done with this. But, you know, the other thing, too, about the marginal tax rate, I should just note is that I think that needs a little bit more explaining for people to, you know, to understand it a little bit, I think. And I don't think this question has that, but. Um, it's my sense that that may need a little bit more expl- explanation. And would that change? I'd love to see how these questions would change if you just had favor mm-hmm. pose this tax period without explaining whose plan it was and also comparing it to something that explains a little bit more about what the marginal tax rate does. Yep. So uh, there has been some very, uh, what's the word I can use? Interesting almost just doesn't seem like enough to describe what's been going on in the state of Virginia over the last. It's, complete, it's completely crazy and shocking what, what has happened. I was it's... on the set of uh, the lead on Friday afternoon and like it was we, we were like a, getting our mics on when all of a sudden some of the panelists were like, I'm getting contacted by reporters asking me about some picture like look at this and they'd like hold up their phone and we didn't talk about it on the show because the story was just kind of like about to break um but it was like oh this is not good this is really bad um and then of course you had on friday night governor ralph northam of virginia admit to or and apologize for a photo that appears on his college or medical school yearbook page that depicts one man dressed as a member of the Ku Klux Klan, another man who is dressed in blackface. Uh, neither of these are good things, um, to put it mildly. And then the next day, sort of retracted his apology and said, no, actually, it wasn't me. And then there was a press conference that was a total mess. And then it turned out the lieutenant governor was accused of sexual assault. And now the attorney general, who would be third in line, has said that he also appeared in blackface at one point when dressing up as a rapper to attend a party. So it's just kind of a dumpster fire mixed with a train wreck all together. And so YouGov has polled to find out, do people think it is unacceptable for a white person to wear blackface makeup? And according to the YouGov poll, 56% say it is unacceptable. 23% say it is acceptable. Among Democrats, it is 78% who say it is unacceptable, while Republicans are somewhat evenly divided. 36% say it's acceptable. 38% say it's unacceptable. A large group also says they are unsure. Um, wow. So... And it doesn't ask, like, is it acceptable? Like, how would you feel about somebody who did it some years ago? I'm not saying that that's different, but it would be a different question that would elicit different responses. We should just clarify that. This is, like, 
in the this is in the present tense. Yeah. Um, and recall, I mean, this was a controversy a couple of months ago because it was it came up and Megyn Kelly, I think, on the Today Show sort of made a statement trying to defend like someone had done it. I forget the exact the specifics, but she was sort of trying to make the case that like, look, I you know, some people don't think this is unacceptable or in, historically, you know, it was it was more accepted back then. And, you know, the times have changed. But and like those were comments that got like huge outrage and, you know, her adver- pulled advertisers and she eventually left NBC. Um, but this this incident really reinforces the idea that like there are actually a lot of Americans that don't either they don't know the history here or they just don't think it's a big deal or and this this polling really really lays that out pretty clearly and it's also i mean you can imagine what what now creates the complication here is that these are three democratic party state officials we're talking about who their own party is the one saying 80, you know 78% saying this is not acceptable um you know if it was a republican on the one hand i think the the uh, uh, calls for them to resign coming from the other side would be loud and vo- louder and more vociferous because the other side believes even more strongly that this is wrong. On the other hand, I think a Republican may be less likely to resign on the grounds that their own base finds it less unacceptable or objectionable. Like I- I'm not sure how to untangle all of this, but at, at current moment, all three of these leaders are under fire. And again, the the lieutenant governor, Justin Fairfax, story is a very different one. And that one's about sexual assault and uh, allegations of sexual assault, rather, and, and what do you do about that? And um, But this is, it is just such a mess that every single statewide office holder in Virginia is somehow implicated in some kind of disaster right now. Yeah, I mean, it is, it's unnerving, right? I mean, because we're not talking about things that happened like 60, 70, 80 years ago. I mean, these things were not that long ago. Um, and the fact that they're all coming out, you know, simultaneously is obviously jarring and unnerving. Um, I, I, I don't know. I mean, it's it's amazing to me how, I mean, I guess, I, I don't know how I feel about it. Oh, wait, so I didn't, no, wait, what did I do want to, I did want to say the, Florida. There was somebody in Florida, but the yeah, Secretary so it, of State, it, it, there was a statewide. Mm-hmm. He was, just resigned like two weeks ago. Uh, yes. Yeah, so there, there have been two other incidents, and in they in from Florida. One was a there's a state representative who is, I believe, my age, and his photo is somewhat recent. He is standing with his African American friend in the picture, and has sort of tried to justify it as like, oh, I was I was doing this for my friend or something like that. So he has resisted calls to resign. The other Florida gentleman was he had just been appointed Secretary of State. He had previously been the Commissioner of Seminole County Elections, which is Orlando suburbs, um, not the county I grew up in, but kind of right next door. Um, And his photo was it was not just that he was dressed in blackface. It was that he had gone to a Halloween party in 2005 dressed as a Hurricane Katrina victim as a black woman. I mean, so it was like like the blackface was like just one part of the level of horrible going on there. So he he resigned very quickly and like had to go um there's no good yeah. there's no like oh but my friend said it was okay and so i did right, like th- i right. mean not or, that i'm saying that know, that's okay but like yes it's that's not, like right. there eight was no, levels of bad there yeah 
Um, and so when I say I don't, I don't know what to think about it, it's not that I don't know what to think about blackface, which is obviously horrible. I'm just like, I want to try to understand the public opinion about it. Is it that, you know, Republicans who are divided on this, do they just see it as a, like a partisan cue that they are activated on? Ha- has there been less sort of cultural conversation around this in a way, you know, that makes it sort of, uh, you know, uh, a less recent conversation about why this is problematic. Um, I, I don't, I don't know, I, you know, I don't know, or, or is it still like going on in so many circles that people find, you know, 38% find it acceptable. I mean, that's 36% rather. I mean, that's, you know, a pretty sizable number of Republicans. And so I, I just, what I, I want to know more about is, What's behind that? I, I would suspect it's a couple things. One, age. We know that age is strongly correlated with Republican identification. So I'm assuming their Republican crosstab is older. And I mean, right. what we've seen, like just now, I just pulled up Twitter. Um, there is a Virginia Senate majority leader who he was the editor of the VMI yearbook in 1968 that had tons. I mean, like, so these stories are unfolding. And right now it's just Virginia. But it would not surprise me if you begin looking at politicians across particularly across the South. Um, But I mean, like if all of a sudden you start finding more and more of this, because while nowadays if a fraternity were to hold a party like that, it would be outrageous and like a national scandal and and what have you. Like I actually it's it seems as though this was somewhat common back in, you know, the 60s and 70s. And so if you have a lot of older Republicans, they may be thinking, oh, yeah, well, I did this in college and I was I didn't mean anything bad by it. And like that's their thought process now. They're thinking of their own times and yeah. them thinking, oh, well, this wasn't a big deal when I did it and not realizing like the the hurt that it has caused um, yeah. and, and the, the historical implications of it. Right. But the question is in present tense. I mean, that's the thing. Like the question is like, sure, how but do I mean, you think about it right now? But you I know? mean, I, so, I can see them thinking like, well, you know, it's like – we did it back then. And, you know, it, it just it wasn't a big yeah. deal. And I and therefore dot dot dot. Maybe I don't understand why it's a big deal now. Like that's that. if yeah. I'm trying to connect the dots, I think race, age and region are all probably pretty closely tied to views on this. And I bet they all yeah. way over index for Republican Party identification. And, and so that it just strikes me that, like, in some ways, that number doesn't surprise me. Uh, and bear in mind, uh, it's not a majority of Republicans who say it's OK, yeah. but you you have a lot in that poll that express unsure who, right. again, they may be grappling with like, wow, it, I guess the world has changed. I didn't realize this was a bad thing. Yeah. I mean, I went to college in the 90s and at the University of Texas, and there were a variety of like racially, you know, things, not blackface, but things like this, like things that were problematic, you know, fraternity parties that were problematic, signs and organizations and all kinds of things that had problematic names that were anachronisms that, you know, were debated in the student newspaper and ultimately had to be changed. I mean, that was happening while I was in school in the 90s. And I, you know, I, I remember finding it incredibly shocking. Like I could not you know, I was just shocked by some of these debates. And I, I thought, wow, this is really, you know, this is a really big cultural difference. And, you know, people arguing like, well, that's the tradition. We've been throwing this party for, you know, 100 years or this organization's had this name for a long, long time. So, you know, so it definitely is something that was happening even not that long ago. And I've uh, there have been people on Twitter sharing stories that were also not that long ago. So, you know, there's different ranges of these, right? Blackface next to somebody with a clan hood, that's you know, clearly, clearly egregious, 
you know, the things that were happening in the 90s were also egregious. Maybe they, you know, they didn't have the same stark visual to the same degree. Yeah. I mean, I'm just I'm, I'm imagining like there was a really good I think CBS did like a, a, a video. It was like a three or four minute video of like the history of blackface and why like why it's so bad. Um, but it also was like, look, Judy Garland wore blackface. Bing Crosby. You know, so again, if you're if you're an older American, like there was a big time in your life when this was normal, you know, to you and, and you know, not if you were an older white American it was just something that, you know, your cultural icons were doing. And so. The world has changed. Now more and more people are, well, clearly through these stories, have been educated that it is not acceptable. Um, but but that education process has not has not happened all the way for everyone. And I think this poll is a stark, stark uh, reminder of that. Yeah. Well, if it were the Brits, how would they say they're sorry? <laughs> In a in a press release, and then say, "Oh wait, would so you like me? Nicer. Would you like me to moonwalk? Wait, no, my wife's saying I shouldn't moonwalk." Oh, I mean, that, you know, the thing the thing that was interesting about that piece, that little piece of the, uh, you know, where the wife went getting involved is there's so many. It's like a trope now of the press conference where the you know man comes forward and apologizes for whatever, and his wife is standing there. And I, I think this was the one of the first times that the wife there was a wife who like played some, you know, who said something in the middle of the press conference, like, no, do not do like, you know, prevented it from going farther. I, that was, an, that I thought was an unusual spin on the man, man brings embarrassed wife to press conference. Do we need any more proof that we need more women in political office? <laughs> Sorry, I digress. Right. Um, um, so yes, there's like, I didn't know there were this many ways to apologize in the Queen's English. <laughs> um, it's like, it's funny that there was even a poll about it. Yeah. So they ask, imagine that a person or company used the following forms of apology. Please say for each whether you would consider it to be a proper anal- proper apology. So I sincerely apologize. 84% say it's a proper apology. And by the way, the Brits spell it with an S, not as... I mean, we would we, we would spell it differently. Like, they, they spell... Yeah. We, we we like our Z's in American English. Um, yes. I offer my sincere apologies. 81% say this is proper. I apologize unreservedly. 77%. I am sorry. 74%. Um, when you start getting into more of the like we instead of I, <laughs> we apologize for the inconvenience caused. Then you start getting lower. Only 48%. We are sorry they had a bad experience with us. 34%. So apologies that sound like you're putting the blame. You're kind of actually putting the blame on someone else or you're trying to distance yourself. Doesn't work. Which I feel like, Margie, how many times have you, well, I feel like at least in my case, I have worked for a number of clients who have either had been in crisis situations or been preparing for crisis situations. And they always kind of want to test out like, how should we, how should we handle the PR around this? And I have never found an instance where it is better to offer like an evasive, we're sorry you had a bad experience. Yeah. Like that, that never works. I don't understand why people do it. Just say like, I'm sorry. And that's so yeah. much better than like the halfway kind of trying to dodge responsibility apologies that people fall for or people think they can get away with all the time. And that like, oh, magically, if I say this, people won't hold me responsible for the bad thing that I'm don't really want right. to apologize for, but feel pressure. Like, no, just apologize all the way. Yeah. Just do it. Like, <laughs> yeah, I know. I mean, I think I mean, I think there's also I've read this. So I may be like misremembering or speaking 
you know, incorrectly, but that for doctors, they caution doctors to not say, I'm sorry, or people worry about saying, I'm sorry, because they don't want to be, you know, leave themselves open or vulnerable legally. You know, when you also had all the, like the various, you know, men who were forced out of their powerful positions because of various sexual harassment scandals, they would say, I'm sorry that, you know, someone else had a different recollection of this, how this happened. You know, you saw lots of those kinds of apologies. Um, and yeah, it's, you know, it's better to just say, you know, like, I'm sorry, you're upset. I'm sorry that you were offended. I mean, yeah, th- th- those don't go over well. And there aren't that many on the list that are like that, but those are definitely not going to be as well received. When presented a list of 10 different types of apologies, that's not going to be high on the list. Although, pro tip to Governor Northam, don't apologize for a photo that you will then, like, hours later actually look at. <laughs> and then say you didn't do. Like, that was <laughs> beyond, beyond. The mismanagement of that whole debacle was beyond. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so the other thing that happened last weekend uh, was the Super Bowl. Uh, yeah. Margie, were you happy with the result? I know you were rooting for the Rams, but I mean, come on. Greatness prevailed. Uh, Greatness prevailed. I, I, You know, I went to bed and fell asleep before the game ended. That's and, okay. I basically um, fell asleep during the game. It was crazy boring. I, I felt good about that choice. Yeah. But I did watch some of the ads. I was paying more attention to the ads. Did you watch the I halftime I, show? I did watch the halftime show. <laughs> it was quite, it was quite funny. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. I mean, it just didn't have a lot of energy and what can you, what can you do? I think my I favorite, my favorite hot take of the night was that as Adam Levine progressively took more and more clothing off senator ben sass was tweeting like please don't take that off and then like would follow it up like every like each new garment that would come off he'd he'd like retweet it with the word like please again at the top of the so it like just created this like growing thread of like please no no what are you doing adam levine it was not yeah. great. not my style they're, uh but they the, were quite funny there were lots of ads that were I thought some of them were okay um the the number one ad according to USA Today's ad meter results was the NFL's own ad right before the halftime show uh it called the 100 year game it was where they had like all of these NFL all-stars in a banquet hall uh you know throwing a football around having watched the game in the presence of two of a I believe a seven and a five-year-old boy um, or a six and a, f- a five-year-old boy, they thought this was amazing. Like they kept shouting, "Like break more tables, break more tables!" Um, and then this was followed up by SpongeBob showing up at the halftime show. So it was like a really strong three-minute run for for the, the five-year-olds that I was with. Um, number two was the Amazon Alexa. Not everything makes the cut. Harrison Ford ad. Number three was my favorite, Microsoft's We All Win ad, which had uh, – it featured a, a young man who was unable – because of his disabilities would be unable to play video games with a, a sort of standard controller. And so they've created special controllers so kids with special needs can game and that's how they can relate to their friends. And, I mean, it was like if you weren't crying by the end of the ad, it was it was just wow. Um and number four was Hyundai, the elevator. That was the ad that had Jason Bateman. I think yeah. his talents being sorely underutilized. Yeah. I love Jason Bateman. And was like, I love Jason Bateman. Why are you I mean, in this I ad? Feel, I know. I mean, I, did, I was like, ooh, I love Jason Bateman. I'm like, oh, but I, now I'm, I'm forced to watch this kind of hokey ad. And also I feel a little bit more conflicted about Jason Bateman after that New York Times 
interview where he was really dismissive of, you know. Um, oh, the Jessica Walter. Yeah. Oh, I remember yes, that in the that Jeffrey me, Tambor. And, yeah, oh, that made me sad. So that made me sad. But for decades before that interview, I had nice thoughts about Jason Bateman. <laughs> but anyway, so, um, but I... That ad, yeah, it just seemed a little hokey, like for him in his little like uniform and hat. You know, the ads that I didn't understand were the uh, Game of Thrones Budweiser ads. I'm like, what is happening? Oh, that here? one was and awesome. I, <laughs> there Sorry. were like a couple of them, and I just didn't quite get what was happening. And then when we were, um, we I had focus groups on Monday night, and I, you know, people were talking like, you know, invariably someone says they like Game of Thrones, and, and like, what's your favorite TV show? And so I said, oh, did you see the Game of Thrones super, you know, Budweiser ad? And I, I found it, I said, I found it a little confusing. And she's like, I think they're just advertising the new season. Like, she was like, so why are you thinking about it so hard? <laughs> Basically, from like a response, I'm like, you're right. I am overthinking, <laughs> overthinking that ad for sure. <laughs> it was wise words from a participant. Well, I, I was glad that the Patriots won because my husband's a big Patriots fan. And I thought the ads were underwhelming. The only other ad that really stuck out to me of note was there was Pepsi always like advertises huge at the Super Bowl. Um, they've had you know a run of epic Britney Spears ads in decades gone by, and their ad this time around was it has like Steve Carell. I, I thought it was kind of smart. Like the day of the Super Bowl, I noticed a hashtag trending, which was like Pepsi is more than okay. And like without context, I was like that is the most terrible marketing slogan I've ever heard. <laughs> it's like there's a there's a, a nail salon near my parents' house in Orlando, and it's called decent nails and like I just never I said like you couldn't come up with anything better like Pepsi more than okay I just I thought this is terrible um but then the in the the ad in context makes it make sense because so often you'll have the experience of being at a restaurant and someone will the waiter or waitress will come up and say oh what what would you like to drink and you'll say oh uh, can I get a diet coke and they go is Pepsi okay and you know like and so the ad was kind of unpacking like what happens in that moment when someone has ordered a coke and they are told, no, 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 the restaurant serves Pepsi. And it's Steve Carell going, okay, it's more than okay. Are bunnies and rainbows and sunshine okay? And then it cuts to, this is the reason why I love the ad. It cuts to Lil John going, okay. <laughs> and it was yeah, like, oh, okay. If you're Lil John and that's your catchphrase, it, this is kind of perfect. So, yeah. I mean, and I'm, they, I'm a Pepsi drinker. Anyways, so I, so they pulled I, it together. They pulled it together. Really? <laughs> oh, it's not okay. <laughs> When pep, when they say Pepsi is okay, I say no. Oh. <laughs> not, it's not, it's not okay. I will have black coffee instead. <laughs> so what did we learn this week? Well, what's on the trend line? Uh, on the trend line this week, I've got uh, our friends from SurveyMonkey are going to be helping me unpack further the capitalism, socialism, and young people survey we talked about on this show a little bit last week. Um, and then I believe I've got uh, Lee Drutman booked um, to chat with me about his quadrant analysis of voters and uh, my Washington Post column that sort of says, Lee's work is why I don't think Howard Schultz will be president. Oh, you're really getting in weeds. That's good. Um, that's good. Some good, good data, good data, folks. Um, so yeah, well, uh, that's what we have. I'm gonna hit. I'm gonna hit, hit the conference now. <laughs> hit the conference in Vegas. R- resume my Vegasing, and uh, we'll see you next week. Sounds good. You can find us on Twitter at at the pollsters, individually at at Marzio Mero and at Casolta Sanderson, or www.thepolsters.com. Thanks. Bye.